We are continuing in our walk through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we have arrived today. Here's the message summed up in two sentences. If you've gotten this, if you happen to nod off after that, uh, you will have gotten the gist of the story, but I do hope you'll stay with us. Message in two sentences. Number one, knowledge puffs up. Number two, love builds up. Have you ever been in a situation like this? Somebody else in the household starts rummaging around and they look a little bit annoyed and they say, but I just know, I know I put them there. I put them where I always put them. And you say, what, what, what is it you're looking for? And they say, my car keys. I always put them in the dish on the counter and I can't find them. And so they finally come to the conclusion that somebody must have moved them. And you're looking for somebody else in the room to point to because you're pretty sure you didn't move them. And after another minute of rummaging around and turning drawers upside down and all that stuff, finally they say, oh, here they are. And you ask, where were they? And the person says, I guess I must have put them in my coat pocket while I was hanging up my mask. <laughs> but I just knew that that's where I had put them. Sometimes we think we know a thing and then we find out that there's a little bit more to the story. Sometimes we're just so certain. And then some other thing happens and we go, ah, maybe I wasn't quite as certain as I thought I once was. Good example of that would be that favorite for guys everywhere. I mean, right along with The Notebook or any of the other Nicholas Sparks books, uh, Pride and Prejudice, I'm sure all of you guys are out there just pining away for the ability to watch one of these. Sometimes we're just so certain, just like Elizabeth Bennett was certain when she first made her assessment of Mr. Darcy. But in the early stages of their relationship, when she just thought she knew all about him and thought he's so aloof and he can't talk well and he seems to be kind of stuck up. But there were some things that happened to reveal to Lizzie over time that maybe he wasn't such a bad guy after all, which is why it was such a shock when Elizabeth finally goes into her father to say, but I've come to really appreciate him and, and I love him. And he says, but isn't this the same guy that you talked about earlier? She goes, oh yes, but I've misjudged him. Like there's the whole Bingley incident and then there's her sister running off with that Wickham fella. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then it turns out that she discovers that Darcy had actually given a lot of money to help save her reputation. And it was a pretty incredible thing. So cue the music. in the rising sun and there everything turns out well in the end sometimes we're just so certain but it turns out that there was more to the story than we once thought okay enough 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 of this darcy stuff let's get to a manly illustration shall we yeah now for those of you who had talked with us a few weeks ago when i mentioned that we're going to have the smell of vision and you're supposed to go get the candles if you didn't get the memo and you haven't picked up the wd-40 candle for this week Guys, you can just go to your garage real quick, get a can of WD-40, squirt a little bit on your hand, maybe a little bit behind the ears, and you'll be ready for this illustration, okay? Sometimes we're just so certain. This is a story about Jack, not Jack Clark, because I've worked with him before, and he actually helped me do some things with tools, and he knows what he's talking about. This is Jack, spelled J-A-C-K. Our Jack doesn't have a K at the end of his name. <laughs> 
Okay, just so you'll know. But there's this Jack and there's this Mark guy. And Jack just thought he knew the right approach. He was going to install a bike shelf or a carrier or a hanger on his garage wall. And so he invites his tool knowledgeable friend Mark over to help him with that. And Mark says, what are you going to use to fasten that bracket to the wall? And Jack holds up a little packet, a little plastic packet. It has two little shelf screws in there. He says, well, I'm just going to use what they gave me. It came with the bracket. And Mark says, I'm not sure about that. I, I think that that's pretty cheap. They're probably not quite as long as you would hope because you really want to get a good bite into that stud behind that uh, sheetrock because there's going to be quite a bit of weight hanging off that bracket. But it's Jack's garage. And Jack is just certain that they wouldn't have put screws in with that bracket if they hadn't been the right types of screws. And so he argues his point and Mark says, that's fine. It, it's your bracket. That's fine. Just go for it. He says, it looks like kind of cheap pot metal. So I'm afraid you might strip those things out. Jack says, no, I've got my really good Phillips screwdriver here and, and it'll be fine. And so after about 45 seconds of trying to get in there with a screwdriver, Jack strips out the first screw. And Mark just sits patiently waiting. And then Jack, getting a little frustrated, puts that screw down, pulls up the second screw, tries to get it going. He gets it almost all the way in, and then that screw strips out as well. So then he says, what do you think we should do? Mark says, well, those little screws are something that they probably should have put in with a hose hanger. That'll go into a fence. But what you need, you need these dudes. You need these big three-inchers, this lag screw. So he pulls out two from his tool belt. Jack looks at him like, where did you come up with two three-inch lag screws like that? Mark says, I'll tell you in a minute. He pulls out his tool belt. He gets a little ratchet wrench. He gets in there and puts the lag screw into the pilot hole, which he drills with his Makita HD75 with nitro for those hard-to-reach jobs. Drills a pilot hole, puts the lag screw in there, starts wrenching away at it, gets it in there nice and firm. And then he puts the second one in the same thing. And then all of a sudden he hangs the bike up there, pushes down on it real hard as if to say, that'll stay there till the cows come home. And Jack says, but Mark, how did you know? Mark said, well, there's something you didn't know. And that is that I've got a friend of mine that lives three doors down from you. And just two weeks ago, he had the very same bracket and he was trying to put it up in his garage. And he came up with the same result you did. So that's why, I stopped by the hardware store on my way home from work and picked up those three inches. Sometimes we're just so certain. Now guys, you can put your WD-40 back on the shelf. <laughs> Today's passage, we're talking about something that's important related to unity and spiritual maturity. And there's this common thread, which I hope that I've set you up for, that lets us know that sometimes before we leap to a conclusion, we need to ask enough questions and then shut our mouths and listen long enough to find out if there's more to the story so that we can build unity and continue to foster maturity. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I'm reading it today from the New Living Translation. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, says Paul. Yes, we know that we have all knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers 
doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there's really only one god. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there's one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. He's talking about those weaker believers. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that's been offered to idols, they think of it as worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't really gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something, they believe is wrong, you're sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again so long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. This is God's word. So let's explore this a little bit. First of all, what is a stumbling block? Well, we have to probably first unpack and clear up a distortion that some of us may have had. Because I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in the kind of sermons that I heard about stumbling blocks in this specific passage, it was almost always about a list, a list of don'ts. And what this is not, it's not a list of forbidden behaviors. It's important for us to get that out of the way. Otherwise, we may be tempted to turn this into something that it's not, similar to something we talked about last week. The list always included things like, you shouldn't go to a movie, and then eventually people started to relax that a little bit, except maybe PGs. PGs would be okay, or Gs are okay, sometimes PG, but mostly G. Gs are fine, especially with below about a certain age. And they had to start defining very carefully what was a G, what was a PG, what was allowed, what wasn't allowed. It became very legalistic. And then to top that all off, we'd say I would never see an R movie. Oh my goodness, the stuff that's in the R movie. And then The Passion of the Christ came out, and it's rated R because of violence. And you think, oh, what are we to do? So that was one of the things about the movies. And then don't go into a bar. And some people, the modern Pharisees, would say, don't even walk near a bar. If you have to cross the street, go to the other side of the street. Other people would say, don't even play on the monkey bars at school because it has the word bar in it. <laughs> I mean, you can see how ridiculous it would start to grow because people could take these two extremes. Or you were never supposed to dance. Can we hear you all say that the way I did just now? Dance. Yeah, you, you got it. You're never supposed to dance. And if you're trying to kill a cockroach, you had to be careful how you did it because it may look like you were dancing and you wanted to avoid the very appearance of evil. Can I get an amen? All right. And you weren't supposed to smoke unless you were really angry. But that's a different kind of smoke. You weren't supposed to smoke except perhaps in the South 
because they would grow tobacco there. Sometimes it would be where you're supposed to smoke and they had to stop people from smoking on the front porch of the church between Sunday school and worship. There are lots of differences in cultures, but those are some of the basics that we used to hear growing up. These are the things in the list of don'ts. And we need to wipe that clean and say, no, this is not Paul's intent. He's not trying to recreate a New Testament version of a Pharisee because a New Testament Pharisee is still a Pharisee. A Pharisee by any other name is still a rose. The problem with lists, the list turned stumbling blocks into a different form of legalism. And that's exactly what they were trying to be coming from after they were freed by Christ from having to live up to some law. And so there was freedom in Christ. And Paul is trying to help bridge the gap between those people who had grown out of those legalisms into a freedom in Christ, along with the Gentile believers who didn't have all those legalistic forms of adherence in their background and try to get them to worship the same God and to be in unity together. That was the milieu, the mixture, the melting pot that was the church in Corinth back in that day. So Paul is not trying to turn early believers into New Testament versions of Pharisees, not his point. It's not about the outward perception of morality because that's what the Pharisees were all about. It was all about looking really holy on the outside, even though Jesus blasted them to say, inside that whited sepulcher is dead men's bones, and you're full of all kinds of evil. Because he said, it's not the external that saves you, it's what happens in the heart. Well, if it's not that, then you can have a pendulum swing to the other side of this fence and say, well, if there's total freedom then, is he saying that it's okay to do anything we want? No, that would be license. And he's not giving us license in chapter eight either. You can't turn 1 Corinthians eight into a license to do what the Bible clearly says is sin. If you look at chapter six, which we just came through recently, if you slander somebody, if you're gossiping about them and killing their character, if you steal from somebody, or if you have bad business practices and you foreclose on some lady's old lady's house without giving her grace and a little mercy along the way, if you're lying about people, if you cheat, if you're committing any form of sexual immorality, which we talked about a lot last week, then you're just straight up sinning. So we can't say that that's what 1 Corinthians 8 is either. It's not about creating a legalistic list of forbidden things, and it's not about license either. So what is it exactly? That's where we're getting. He says, knowledge can puff you up with pride, but love fosters unity and it fosters spiritual maturity. And this is what this whole chapter is about. And it's about how believers are relating to other believers. It's not about our relating necessarily to an outside world. Everything that Paul is addressing right here in chapter 8 is about believers relating to other believers. It's about how your behavior affects somebody else and their walk with Jesus and their faith. In the Greco-Roman idol worship era, which I mentioned briefly last week, there were some who were part of this idol worship before they were saved. And sometimes that idol worship was really bad, and sometimes it even included sexual immorality and different kinds of practices that they thought were a part of arousing certain senses that would help them to become more in touch with a god of fertility, for example. And so if they were saved out of that kind of idol worship in which there were other things happening there, idols that would be, uh, you give offerings to them, including certain kinds of meat, and then that meat would be sold in a market, 
sometimes there would be things like a banquet that would happen and you'd have to say, well, am I invited to that banquet or not? Yes, I'm invited. Is there going to be meat there at the banquet that was bought at the market after the meat had been offered to an idol? Because then I have a decision to make. Am I going to have to go to that banquet and then just not eat the meat and run the risk of offending the banquet host? Or should I, uh, and now today we could probably just mark on a little RSVP card and say, I would like a vegan meal, please. Or I like a vegetarian meal. Uh, something with a little tofu, if you wouldn't mind. They didn't have that back then. And so you had to try to figure out, what do I do? Am I going to offend this person by doing this? Or am I going to offend this person by not doing that? It was difficult. At the very least, you could cause somebody to feel guilty if you offered them meat, which had previously been offered in a worship ceremony to an idol. So they would feel terrible. They would have this seared conscience from this seared meat and they'd be thinking, oh no, I'm a terrible person because I've just sinned and now I have to feel this shame all the rest of my week because I did this terrible thing. That's at the very least. At the most, some of them might have actually been tempted to go back into some of that worship practice and idolatry because they would think that you were becoming syncretistic or adding in other elements of idol worship along with your Christian worship practices. Kind of like if you were to go to Haiti and you'd say, well, a little voodoo is okay along with our Christian practices. Let's just blend them both together. And we think, no, that's not okay. It's not okay for you to blend anything in with our Christian worship practices because Christ is the only way and we have to worship him and him alone. This is something that's very important in that Christian maturity and growth. So here's Paul's logic in chapter eight. Meat is just meat. There's nothing immoral or moral about it. It's neutral because an idol also is just something that's man-made. It's neutral. It only gains power if we give it power. By what we believe about that, that's what we turn it into. It's really our turning something into it because an idol is not based on truth. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth. He literally lived. He literally lived a sinless life. He literally died. He literally was buried. He literally was raised again. All that's based on truth, which is revealed to us, but an idol isn't. Something very different between the idol worship and the worship of Jesus Christ. So, Paul says, we can't win God's approval by what we eat or don't eat. And that's important because we need to know that that matches what he said in the book of Romans. Because it's really by faith that we're saved, not by any works. And if you could do a list of do's and don'ts, and if you didn't do this list, and if you did do this list, then you could earn God's approval. That would be works-oriented, and that's not what our salvation is based on. So two things are at stake here. That's S-T-A-K-E. <laughs> okay. It's unity among diverse believers and spiritual maturity among those who came from a different background than you did. Now, if we extrapolate that and pull it out a little bit into our contemporary culture, are there people that you know today who were saved out of a different background than you grew up in? Absolutely. We all have those friends in our backgrounds who probably grew up differently than we did. We all do. So there's some commonalities here, some principles that can still be just as poignant to us today as they were back when Paul wrote these words. For an example, we had a good friend of ours. He lived with us for a time. He was one of these wonderful uh, young Timothys, if I were his Paul, so to speak. Joy and I decided we needed to help disciple this young guy. He was spending more time at our house than he was where he normally lived anyway. So finally, Joy said, why don't you just move in? And he said, well, okay. <laughs> so he moved into our basement and he became our sort of uh, other son for a while. 
but he was saved out of a very difficult lifestyle. He was playing in a secular band. And after he was saved, he was radically different. So radically different that he literally would burn a lot of his CDs. And back then they had these things called cassette tapes. And he burned those too, but he would not play even on the radio. He would switch the station. He wouldn't listen to any non-Christian or secular music for a long time after he was saved. Now, some people might have seen that as being kind of extreme, and they might have thought, that's a little bit radical. Uh, isn't he going a little bit overboard there? Well, just because I wanted to live out chapter 8 from 1 Corinthians, I thought, well, I'll just honor him in his desire. So when he was around, if there was a good song on, even if it was not one that had any bad words to it, it was something that it was perhaps even an instrumental number that I thought was a nice jazz piece, I would turn it off because I didn't want to offend my young brother who was still coming out of that background. One time he took me out for coffee and he showed me the lyrics to some of the songs that he had played and sung back when he was in a, a rock band. And it was just downright satanic. I mean, it would just make you give you chills. He said, this is why I don't want to listen to any secular music because I still have such bad memories associated with that that it's like a trigger for me. And I don't want to remember any of those things. I'm trying to create a brand new life for myself. And I thought, wow, I didn't have that same experience. I can't relate to that, but it clearly it meant a lot to him. It was a big deal. And so I honored that. Several years later, he came to the point in his maturity in Christ to understand that there were some God-inspired secular music. And when he started to become exposed to some of that, he thought, oh, this is a beautiful piece of music. And it was a secular piece, but clearly God can inspire composers. It was God who gave him that creativity in the first place. God gave him the gift, even if he didn't recognize that it was God who gifted him with that. This is a gorgeous piece, and it's evocative. And it makes me think about things that God has put into this world so he relaxed his stance on that. But in the early stages of his discipleship, this was important for him. Cigars to celebrate a new baby. I tried to find some of the origins to this. They're all over the map. Some people think that it had to do with the Native American Indians, that they would smoke some things uh, or offer tobacco to each other to celebrate something like the birth of a new baby. Other people thought that it was because the guys just needed to pass the time because they weren't allowed into the birthing room back in the old days. So they used to gather together and to pass the time, they would just pass around some cigars. Well, I know this will come as a shock to some of you, but there's no specific verse in scripture that says, thou shalt not smoke a cigar. You won't find it. I've actually tried looking it up. Some people have, and I think mistakenly, tried to use certain verses that say, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which they are. And it says we ought to take care of our bodies, which is true. But the real emphasis of that specific passage was to avoid sexual immorality. So that's kind of pulling that verse out of context to try to say you shouldn't smoke or you shouldn't smoke a cigar. So I'm not saying let's all go out and grab some cigars today. Woohoo! But what I am saying is that let's say that you're around a group of guys and somebody has just celebrated the birth of a new baby. I know we've had one recently in our own midst. Congratulations to the Georges. We're very happy about baby David. Uh, but let's say that somebody's going to offer you a cigar and you politely decline and you say, thanks, I really appreciate it. And it was a nice one. So he spent some money on that. It was a nice gift, but you just politely decline. Now, if he tried to really press you and say, well, why? How? 
why wouldn't you take this? Are you offending me by, are you too good to smoke with me? And if I were to say, well, yeah, here's the deal. I actually was addicted to cigarettes for 20 years and it was one of the hardest things for me to break in that addiction. And I finally, with the God's help, I finally put a pack of cigarettes on the altar and I said, God, I've got to do this thing because I don't want to ruin my life. I wanna live as long as I can for you. And even though there's nothing forbidding this necessarily in scripture, I just wanna take care of myself so I can live more years to proclaim your glory and so when he finally broke that habit, I didn't want to do anything that would tempt me to get back into that habit. So that's why I'm not going to celebrate with you in this way, but I am happy for you. Can you understand that there may be some rest of the story that if people ask enough, we'd find out, oh, there's more to the story. Now I understand why this is more important to this guy than it would be for me necessarily. Here was my solution to that problem back at seminary because I was in seminary and I figured that probably there would be some people who were kind of like modern day Pharisees who would really frown on me giving out cigars when our firstborn uh, came into the world because she was born in Fort Worth as I was finishing up my master's degree. Here's what I did. <laughs> I gave out bubblegum cigars. Of course, I didn't tell them how many preservatives and sugar there were in those bubblegum cigars probably just as bad for them as some other things, but at least I didn't get in trouble for handing out tobacco. And then how about champagne at a wedding reception? This actually has happened to a friend of mine, so it's kind of fresh. There was somebody who had little glasses of champagne. They weren't huge, little champagne, just for the toast at the reception immediately after the wedding. And they said, here, would you like to toast with us? We're going to toast the bride and groom. And the guy said, I appreciate that, but I think I'm just going to stick with my water over here for now. Now, if somebody had pressed him for the reason why he's not taking that champagne, they might have gotten the story that he grew up with an alcoholic parent. And there were a lot of tragedies associated in his young childhood. And he and his sister actually had to leave the house and run next door for safety at times because of a father who became a mean drunk. And so he said, I don't know if this is genetic or not. I know that there has been some association. Some people think that it, there may be a genetic link there and that I might have a predisposition toward alcoholism. I don't want to unlock that. I don't want anything to infringe on my being a good parent to my kids. I don't want them to live through what we had to go through when I was growing up. And so I've just made a, a habit not to drink anything. And so that, that's why I'm politely refusing. You see, if we listen long enough, we might find out that there's a good reason why somebody is appearing to be goody two-shoes or to do something that appears overly religious or legalistic. But for them, it's not legalism. There may be a really good reason why they're not doing a certain thing. That was Paul's point. He's saying there may be more to the story here, folks. So if you're a Gentile and you've got this newfound freedom in Christ and you're thinking, what's the big deal? Let's eat the meat. Let's have some more steak. Put it on the Barbie along with some shrimp. There may be more to this story. So just listen long enough, ask questions, and it, you're not going to earn God's favor by it. You're not going to be any better off for it. You're gonna, not going to be any worse off for it. So just do without for a time when you're around these people, and let's build some harmony. Let's build some unity among one another, shall we? Let me digress only slightly. This is a little bit of a parenthetic note here. Don't have it in my notes, but I think it's cogent, and I think it's important. One of the things that's been on my mind about what we do to try to get back into some sort of a public worship space has been 
What's going to motivate our doing that? And I want us to have unity and maturity more than anything. One of the things that we cannot do in certain kinds of getting back together is that we can't live stream in certain situations. I really would love to do a parking lot get together, but we can't live stream from the parking lot. Even if it was in lawn chairs or even if it was in an FM transmitter into our radio stations in the car. And so we would have probably close to half of the people that are worshiping with us each Sunday that wouldn't be able to come out there on the parking lot at the same time that we're worshiping. So they would have to get something that was recorded and put up later. I kind of want us to feel like we're doing this together, like we did with communion. Even though we're in our separate places, we're communing and we're being in unity together. I don't want to leave anybody behind. So one of the things that continues to go through my mind is whatever we do, I want us to do it together as much as is humanly possible. So given this new era, I want us to be thinking more about others than we think about ourselves. And even though we might have a desire to do something, let's be thinking about those other people out there and to think, does Romans 8 apply to me in this moment? Is there something I might need to give up a desire or a right so that we can all be together, even if it means together in worship? I think that may be cogent for us today. Gilbert K. Chesterton, GK, good old GK, he had some good quotes and he says, to have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. And I think he captures Paul's concept pretty clearly there. Yeah, we can have a right to do something, but just because I have a right to do it doesn't mean that I am right in doing it. Sometimes, even though I have a right and if I give it up, I'm actually being more Christ-like because that's exactly what Christ did for us. He had all the rights in the world and yet he gave them all up for our benefit. That's what we celebrated in communion earlier today. So here's Paul's conclusions. If fill in the blank with whatever it might be, is likely to destroy unity and to disrupt community. Why do it? Why do it in the first place? If, fill in the blank again, is likely to cause somebody else to stumble in their walk with Jesus, why would you do that? Why couldn't you just give that up temporarily, especially if you're going to be around them for a while? Why not just not do that for a time to show that you're considering them as more important than yourself. Restated it, let's do it this way. We should be willing to abstain from doing anything that would make a weak Christian think less of his or her faith, or that would make a person feel more at ease in his or her sin. If we're a mature Christian, we don't want to do that to anybody else, even if they're less mature than we are in their faith. John's gospel certainly agrees, and in 1 John, uh, there are two passages here, one from John, one from 1 John, that really sums this up. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus said that. John's quoting from Jesus. No greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. Maybe it's a small thing. Probably. It probably is a small thing. What I see happening in our country today is that there are a lot of small things that are being blown way out of proportion rather than being able to focus on what can lead us into unity. What better thing to unify us than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That should be at the center of everything that unifies Christians together. And this, this is from 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we, in turn, ought to lay down our lives 
for our brothers and sisters. This is probably a, as good a time as any for us to arrive at this chapter because of all that we see happening in our world today. Boy, do we ever need unity. And do we ever need individuals being able to lay down some of our rights for one another to show Christ-like love and sacrifice for other people. Now's that time. Is the Holy Spirit perhaps speaking to some of your hearts right now? Is he asking you in this moment to lay down something that you have clung to as a right? Even though you know you're right, are you being right in doing it? If it's going to cause disunity, if it's going to disrupt the community that God's trying to build through his believers? If so, just pray a quick prayer right now and say, Lord, forgive me. I have clung to this and I'm making it bigger than it needs to be. Let me elevate Christ and let me let go of some things that I have thought were important that I was treasuring. I want to treasure you more than I treasure this right. Let's pray together. Father, this is a tricky one because we can't just boil it down into a list of don'ts. And so I'm asking right now that your Holy Spirit, who knows us all much better than we know ourselves, would speak to each of us right now. And whatever that thing is that we may have clung to, I pray that we'll release it right now in this moment. I pray that we'll lay down our right and that we'll lift up Jesus Christ and show how much we love you by showing how much we love our brothers and sisters, even though it may mean giving up one of our rights temporarily. I pray that the more we do that for one another, the more we're going to be seen by the rest of the world looking in at us as a people who really cares for one another. That's peculiar in a good way. We're peculiar people by the way we care for one another, by the way we forgive each other and lift each other up and encourage one another. And so I pray that we'll become that kind of a collective people so that people will know that there's something powerful behind that kind of unity. And we'll be able to point to you and say, it's Jesus Christ. He's the power. It's his power at work in us, creating this unity. And these things I ask in the name of that same Christ who gave himself up for us.